Welcome back to We Make Books, a podcast about writing, publishing, and everything in between. I'm Rekka. I write science fiction and fantasy as R.J. Theodore. And I'm Kaylin Considine. I'm the acquisitions editor for Parvis Press. And today, um, we have to make another, like, full disclosure confession. Um, <laughs> Uh, we have another Parvis author on today. Uh, you recently heard us talk to Scott Warren of uh, the Union Earth Privateers book and uh, book series, I should say. And today we have another author of another amazing Parvis book, uh, Michael R. Underwood of Annihilation Aria fame, or about to be fame. I hope it's fame because this yeah. book deserves it. Yeah, um, Annihilation Aria is coming out um, a week from when this will be released. So this is uh, July 14th, uh, coming out July 21st. Um, it's a fantastic book. Um, a space opera, uh, when I first got the manuscript and was kind of giving it a rundown to uh, my publisher and the other people on my team, I described it as the gender-swapped mummy in space. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, I guess the mummy does have magic, too. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but with giant space turtles yes. and therefore better. Yes. Um, yeah, so Mike was kind enough to take the time and sit and talk with us about uh, the evolution of story writing and character development. Um, this book had been something that he was working on for years. Um, it, While the core parts of it didn't change too much, the book certainly underwent a lot of evolution over the years. So, And Mike is um, so smart, so talented, um, has a lot of really great insight and uh, advice to offer when it comes to, you know, kind of being able to take a look back at your own work and figuring out how it needs to change in order to serve the story. So uh, we had a great time talking with Mike. Hopefully you have a great time listening to him. And uh, you should, you still have time right now to pre-order Annihilation Aria, uh, book one of the space operas. Absolutely check it out. Not only because I'm the one that edited it, but because it is a, it is an excellent book. <laughs> I totally agree. I got the chance to read it um, when I was recovering in the hospital, and it was a delight. Um, it was absolutely everything that Kaylin and Mike promised it would be. So, uh, so anyway, take a listen, and we hope you enjoy. So I guess we're just going to have to go straight into it. <laughs> the dive right into talking to Mike Underwood today. Hi. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> this is the thing about being on a podcast that I've listened to. Yeah. I have to actively keep my brain dial on the talk to these people oh, yes. uh, <laughs> mode instead of the listen to these people I mean, mode. we can just talk about you, but it seems a little rude considering you're, you're in the recording with us. Especially because none of us are in the same uh, same space right now. Usually, Rekka and I are at least sitting across from each other. Yes, I have the blanket that Kaylin usually has today. Oh, my blanket. <laughs> Missed that blanket. It sheds all over me, but it's worth it. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> stuff has to shed in my shed. Um, it oh, it works with the name, but it's also because it makes me feel less lonely for my pets that are in the house because we don't want them shedding in the shed. Um, we did know... I'm derailing this conversation now. This just goes down a road of puns that there's no recovery from, <laughs> and then we have to start over again, and it's just, it's going to be a thing. So, Mike, do you want to do you want to save us here and introduce yourself? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm Mike Underwood. I write as Michael R. Underwood. Uh, I mostly do kind of action-adventure, um, kind of meta-genre kinds of stuff. So, like, I like found families. I like trope-twisting. And um, my next book is Annihilation Aria, which is coming out with uh, Parvis Press. So I've had the, uh, the fortune of getting to work with both of you in a professional capacity. And uh, I'm very excited to talk about the book with your audience. And we're really excited to have you on here because uh, there is this book has a long and storied history. Um, this was not a simply wrote something, submitted it, got it accepted and published. There was um, even before... Uh, it came to Parvis before I started working on it. Um, you were what three-ish years into this book at that point. Yeah. So um, this book basically starts the for, uh, in the movie theater as I'm watching Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay. Um, <laughs> and like really enjoying a lot of what it did with tone and kind of 
um, really bold visual style with all of the like high technicolor space opera bits, plus some like retro nostalgia aspects. Um, and so that informed a conversation I had with an editor who I shall let remain nameless um, that I was talking with at a world fantasy convention. And in that conversation, I mentioned that I really would love to write something that would make people feel the same type of joy um, and like smile so much your cheeks hurt mm-hmm. kind of vibe that I got while watching so much of Guardians of the Galaxy. And it's not a perfect film because there are very few perfect films. Um, but I loved that mode of space opera that it had where it's a bit more irreverent. It still has some of the the, the found family vibes that you see in something like um, Firefly or Killjoys. Um, but it's on the more adventure epic fantasy, but make it space and pew pew um, <laughs> versus space opera that's uh, a lot more like hard, leads towards hard science, like something like The Expanse. Um, I've always been more of a like Dune and Star Wars end of space opera kid versus um, that kind of overlap between space opera and military SF or the, um, this is what things will be like 700 years in the future when we have an Alcubierre drive or whatever, like that's not my thing. <laughs> um, and so what I brought to it was, you know, a lifetime of loving Star Wars, but also various like role-playing games and wanting to find in a project, like a place to say what I want, what I was interested in and investigate the things I loved about space opera. Um, so I took a play from um, Annie Belay, um, who has talked about like basically just making up a wish list of tropes that she loves about urban fantasy. And she put those into a series. Um, so I just kind of like sketched out like fun, weird things. Like what if giant space turtles and like, space magic <laughs> bullshit and um, uh, like finding a way to just kitchen sink a novel in terms of things that I liked. Um, and it kind of started to build up momentum there. But because I wrote it kind of as a back burner project over years and years and years, where it started and what it has become now, like there's a big gap there and there's a lot to, to unpack um, from, you know, what the characters were really about to how the world feels to then into the editorial process with Kaylin kind of like repeatedly inviting me to, you know, unpack things or slow down and give a deeper view into characters. It's a, it's very generous of you to use the word invited you to. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, um, I know Kaylin, that's a, that's a very interesting verb choice. <laughs> so, Mike, I'd like to hear more about this. Oh, okay. Here's a sentence. No, Mike. <laughs> I know where you live, Mike. <laughs> um, but that was something I, and uh, it, just for the sake of clarification, I'm the editor at Harvest that worked with uh, Mike on this in case that hasn't become apparent. Um, one of the things that really drew me to this book and that I was wanting Mike to slow down and unpack was um, the character for all of the, you know, the setting and the fantastical elements of this, the characters are such a huge driving force, I think, for the story. Um, I would absolutely read anything that is just set in this universe, Mm -hmm. as long as the characters are as engaging, compelling, and fun as the ones that you've written in Annihilation Aria. Um, but you had kind of a few things you wanted to accomplish with the characters as well. Yeah. So like, you know, I've been in the same relationship since 2010. I'm happily married. Um, you know, my wife and I get along very well. And in science fiction, fantasy, adventure fiction, especially, there's just not a lot of instances of happily committed couples, um, let alone happily committed, you know, married couples. Um, and I think there's a lot of cultural reasons that go into this that are probably several podcasts worth of their own and would be probably would be best had in conversation with, you know, romance, capital R romance writers. Um, but the short version was that I wanted to um, to write the kind of story that's that really argues that happily ever after can also be really exciting. Um, and so that was one of the the nexuses uh, around which the story was built. Like, okay, what if I do this, but I have a couple that's already together and happy at the beginning of the book and not that they don't face challenges. And one of the, the, the start of their relationship was, oh, these two people who both have a quest um, that they're trying to fulfill, 
that if either of them gets what they want, theoretically, the couple breaks up. But that when they meet, they're like, oh, you can help me with my my thing and I'll help you with your thing, except that along the way they fell in love. And so they're, they're still on this trajectory that theoretically means, that could mean the dissolution of the relationship, but they don't really have anything else to like as a way of being in the world because like, they can't just like be together and be happy like they mm-hmm. they have their own drives and they just they exist in a pretty oppressive system that requires you know that they have a lot of money um, because they have exterior debts and things like that and the same kind of firefly vibe um, so that that tension between their attraction to each other and their individual quests that might pull them apart um, was one of the big engines that made the story move so that when they run into kind of this um, ancient kingdom techno, like biotech um, tomb that they, they run into early in the story, that gets a MacGuffin into their hands that then becomes a big deal. And they're each engaging with it and the things around them because they have these sometimes competing, usually overlapping drives um, that are motivating them. And that that um, almost like a perpetual motion machine of character interaction um, was really fascinating. And I wanted to keep on working with while trying to balance respecting the fiction where there really is this chance that things could fall apart for them while knowing that I wanted them to not break up because like that was part of the whole thing. Um, One thing that was notable for me as I was reading the book was that at no point do they not want the other one to succeed. Like they are so supportive of each other that even though it means that it would break them up and like they exist on different planes. Like, yes, this fact is over here that like if I got what I wanted, I would be across the galaxy from this other person. Um, But at the same time same plane, they also really want the other person to be happy and to succeed at their personal, like, character art quests. And it's really, like you said, it builds tension, but it's just really nice to see people who support each other. And even though there's this big divide between what's best for their relationship versus what's best for the individual. Yeah, and... Along those lines, and this maybe might be a transition into talking about some of the more uh, mechanical aspects of writing this, is that um, you know these two characters are Max and Lara, and they are two of the main POV characters. But when you started writing this, they were the only POV characters, correct? I think there were there were a very small number of POV chapters for um, Wheel, who is the the pilot of the the two main characters, and then Arak, who is kind of their primary antagonist. So he's an agent of this galactic empire that controls the space that they live in. Um, And I had a little bit from each of them as counterpoint or context, but it was still very much Max and Lara's story. And the other ones were just there to give a little bit of context and color. And only over years of doing other projects and writing and growing as a creator, did I make the moves to kind of promote Wheel and Arak as POV characters and to treat them with more um, with more depth and roundedness. Um, and that as I engaged with them and then especially into the like, revision process, and um, I saw and was convinced that there was more for the novel to do and it could be richer for digging more into the emotional lives of all four of those POV characters. And you really did, especially with Arik. Um, he's not the prototypical space fiction uh, villain. You know, he's got a lot of complexity to him. He's still definitely a villain, but he's like, you know, the least worst villain kind of personality. And and they're definitely, again, you've given each character a drive and, and something to... Um, that they're aiming for, which might be at odds with what the organizations that they work with are aiming for. And so how did you make those decisions um, as you're developing, especially, you know, a villain character, um, but also Wheel? You know, it's really interesting that Wheel might have had a very tiny part just in the the sense that Wheel is the owner of the ship that everyone lives on, I assume. And maybe Mm -hmm. Wheel has to help rescue at some point or Wheel has to uh, support with, you know, something Wheel can witness that 
the other characters can't or something like that. I mean, I, I have obviously done the same thing with POVs where somebody like was there because it was convenient to have another POV. And then that person had to become a fully rounded character of their own. But like when you built Arik, you didn't have to go that far. You still could have sold this book without going as far with Arik as you did. But like, so why did, how did you start to see Arik and, um, how much sympathy do you personally have for him? <laughs> well, and I'll jump in just to add to that is that you gave all of these characters a life outside of this story. Mm-hmm. Every single person, if they were not taking part in this story happening to them, would be doing something else. And we, the reader, can kind of are in a position where we can kind of see or imagine what they're doing because even though, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but it gives us a very good sense of them. Yeah, I think a lot of how I approach characterization in writing is probably um, informed by growing up playing tabletop role-playing games. So, like, tabletop role-playing was one of the main ways that I learned to tell stories and to, to think about what I wanted from stories alongside reading um, and watching TV and movies and reading comics and things like that. So in a lot of role playing, you know, you have kind of the characters as they are, and then you're engaging with a game master who says, here's a plot. Um, and then you engage, engage <laughs> yeah. with the plot. And that's one style of game mastering and more recent uh, role playing games. A lot, uh, a lot of them are, are more kind of player driven in terms of character agenda and shared, um, uh, narrative authority and and things like that in the apocalypse world tradition from that game by Vincent and Maggie Baker um, and all the games that come from it. So I brought kind of a one version of like acting experience to writing in terms of like, okay, here's a character and they are my character and I want to kind of be able to inhabit them at least a little bit mm-hmm. um, to get a sense of who they are so that when I then also as the the writer um, can throw things at them, I'm able to jump between those registers in terms of inhabiting a character and kind of providing the antagonism or the context and or all the other stuff that goes around a character. Um, And I think it was because I was familiar with that style of writing, like that that's really so much of how my, what my writing comes out of is that if I'm going to be in the POV of a character, it's hard to not, spend some time with them and to linger with them and to think about their agency and their, like what they want from the world. And as much as like, I grew up loving Star Wars and Darth Vader and Darth Vader is a great antagonist, but he's not a great character in a rounded fashion Mm -hmm. um, because he's so much of a cipher and just like, he is the, the iron fist that punches at the, the protagonists, you know, you get into the prequels and you see some of the backstory and think, but that's not what I grew up with. You know, that I was 16 or so when episode one came out um, and we really start to get that backstory for him. Um, and I think I've, I've moved toward this point where at least some of the time I want villains or at least like the, the personification of villainy or like the person that the team is engaging with to feel enough of, enough like a person that they are not just a mustache twirling um, foe. Like, cause I've written more straight up mustache twirling um, villains in other books, like in Shield and Crocus, which is very superhero-y, the villains kind of run a gamut. And some of them are just like, I am really terrible, ha ha, oppression. Um, in Arik, I think he started out as more of just like Lieutenant bad guy and he probably grew grew that roundedness when I thought about like, well, why is why is he the one who's out here in the boondocks? Mm-hmm. Like, who is yeah. who who is the person within this like species supremacist empire that ends up on this bad duty? And like, okay, well, I know that from what I know about militaries and and governments, like, okay, you get a crap duty because you piss somebody off or because you're out of favor. I'm like, okay, well, what is it like to be out of favor? in this species of like super soldier galactic tyrants you know why would that be a thing you know i started so i started thinking about it a little bit about class and like cased within the species like oh okay or is it that he has some relationship to the the dominant ideology of the species so he ended up as being like 
more humane than most of the members of his civilization. And because of that, he was marginalized within this very domineering fascist civilization. Um, and it's a, you know, a little bit of getting to talk about the way that oppressive civilizations oppress even the people with, with mm-hmm. that have power um, mm-hmm. or that, you know, that not everybody is equal, even with an oligarch, uh, within an oligarchy um, because the lines of oppression and pressures are not all along one axis. Everything is very multi-axial in terms of where people occupy more privileged or less privileged positions or are taking actions that put them more or less in line with a dominant paradigm. And like thinking about world building in that fashion is also really important to me. And so when I take a character and kind of put them through that bouncy castle of all these different things of world building, uh, they tend to accrete a bit more personhood. So piggybacking off of that, and we had kind of touched on this a little bit before, was that you you wrote this over a, a lengthy period of time, and there were characters that evolved, obviously, and became more uh, prominent points for, uh, well, viewpoints in the story. How much of that do you think was really getting comfortable with and learning about this world you were creating and wanting to build upon? And how much was that, you know, we're all adults here, but three years you grow and you change and you look back at things you did before that and go, oh, well, I don't like that anymore. Um, how how much of it was organic story building and evolution and how much of it was going back and evaluating what you'd already written? I think it was definitely both and in a really kind of integrated circuit kind of way that life experience and working as a writer were very intertwined, you know, like I would fold life experiences into writing or I would um, develop my understanding of storytelling um, in a more nuanced fashion because I had time. And I just, because I had time, I could let things ruminate and mull and simmer over time. Like, okay, well, what, what if not just this layer of how Lara's civilization operates, but well, what if there's this other thing that builds on what's already there? I'm like, okay, so this is a, there's a multi-cased system and you've got kind of the nobility at top and you've got soldiers and the soldiers serve the nobility. And okay, well, in a civilization, you can't just have soldiers and nobility. You're going to have farmers, you're going to have technicians, you're going to have, you know, all these things. So, okay, so there's this other, these other parts of society and, I had the title Annihilation Aria way before the Janae had um, music magic. Because mm-hmm. the title Annihilation Aria was like, oh, that's cool because like space opera and I'm riffing yeah. on that. And but it's like it's its own thing. And you've got, you know, world killers are a big thing in space opera. And like, OK, how can I how can I take these things and make them my own? And then I realized looking back as I was, you know, kind of picking away at the project over years that I had already set a foundation upon which I could build something that would give Lara's civilization and therefore her backstory more, more meat to it. And that as I was writing parts of the story where the Janae really matter, I was able to like kind of layer on these extra things and having more time to layer texture and history onto the story was really valuable. And because a lot of the other ways that I've written, you know, I wrote my debut and I got an offer to sell it very early in the revision process because of um, wacky circumstances for which I'm very fortunate. And from that, there, I had several years of, okay, cool. So you have a contract, write a book, turn it in, production, publication. And so I wrote books that were much more condensed in their uh, timeline. Mm -hmm. So it's write a book over nine months, revise it over six months, it comes out. Um, Or, you know, sometimes a little bit more, um, sometimes even a little bit less. With this one, because I didn't didn't sell it on spec um, and I was going in a different direction, it had this opportunity to accrete depth and texture over time. But I don't want to have a writing career where it takes five years to do every book. I was just about to say, is that something you recommend? Real quick, Mike, if you wouldn't mind backtracking to kind of go on a little side tangent here, you said write a book on spec. Um, For our listeners that 
maybe do not have as much experience in the professional writing world as you do. What's the different? What are you saying here? What is writing a book on spec versus what you did with Aria? Sure. So I sold my debut having written the whole book, and then cool, we want to publish this and a sequel. Great. Uh, so I did that, and then I went back to the same editor, and I said, I want to write something else um, from these re-raised books. And so I created pitches, and I sold them. I sold those books without having written the whole book, um, which is you're one selling, version of... Yeah, you're some, selling based on the pitch that you're giving. Yeah, and that's one degree of selling on spec. Like, there are people who just say, cool, I want to write a book, and the publisher's like, we love you, please sell us this book. <laughs> that is, that's really selling a book on spec, you know, and that will show up in Publishers Weekly or Locus as, you know, famous author's next book to editor at publisher. And it like, it can be very vague. It takes a while for most authors to get to the point where they can just say, I want to write a book for you. And the publisher says, yes, here's some money. Most uh, authors will not get to a point <laughs> where that happens in their career. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's just that typically, and correct me if I'm wrong, these are going to be household names either within the general populace or within genres. Um, you will yeah. know the people that are able to sell books on spec. Yeah, or it's like, um, you know, I have friends who they sell a book that's already written, and but it's a standalone, so they get a two-book deal, and the second book is, it'll be a book. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's probably more common than, here's a one-book deal, I don't know what the book is yet, but I have the the, the, the track record that you just want to buy it. Um, so I had tried to write, I had tried to sell a couple of books on partials because I said, well, okay, here I have this track record and I have this background in the in the professional side of publishing, um, but you know those didn't happen. So I just kind of went back and you know you know, writing new novels and trying to to sell things. And at this point. Um, I wanting to try to do enough different things with my writing where it's like, oh, cool, I've got these adventure books and I want to write some other stuff that's a bit more like sociological or political and try to balance all these things that I want to do as a creator. Um, but I don't want to spend five years for each book because economically it's just not viable to be able to support the costs of a writing career in terms of conventions and things like that mm -hmm. off of one book every five years, unless I'm getting just a lot more money and very few people get so much money from science fiction fantasy that they can spend five years on a book. Um, so Aria is this weird book that may be pretty singular in my career in terms of how long it has taken to become the thing that will be published in just a couple of, or as of this recording, you know, in a couple of months. Um, so I try to revel in that distinctiveness because it will probably be pretty singular and hope to apply the lessons that I've learned while writing it um, much more efficiently moving forward to think about things with texture and depth from an earlier part, an earlier stage of the process, and then to embrace that opportunity to um, make a, a book more rich and textured in the revision process um, to try to do several years worth of work in you know maybe a year, year and a half in strong collaboration with an agent or an editor or something like that. So you've spent the last, you know, four or five years create handcrafting the tools themselves that you now can put in your toolbox and reach for, hopefully, and use them without having to remake them every time going forward. I sure hope so. Yeah, um, well, that would be I, an, a very efficient use of your time, I think. <laughs> yeah, I just finished uh, the rough draft for a new novel that is very different from Aria. Um, but I think it would have been hard, very hard for me to write it if I had not already been through that process of, you know, pulling this book together over the course of several years while working on other things as my, my main deal, like developing and doing all the work for Born of the Blade and self-publishing stuff from Genre Knots and, um, and things like that. So that I'm hoping that the messiness, I can, I can clean up a bit while still uh, being able to um, reapply those tools, as you say. Now, Mike, when you went back from this, and um, I, I just know from our conversations and working together that at various points, you spent a lot of time working on this, you picked it up, you put it down again, you came back and forth to it. Um, 
Were there any points when you were going through and revising this that you knew there were changes you had to make that you weren't happy about making, that you were reluctant to to really do anything with? Tell us how Kaylin hurt you. Um, this is, no, no, no. We're talking. We're talking pre pre editor. Oh, okay. If you say um, so. Um, well, what I'm trying to get at here is, you know, and uh, Rekha and I back in, uh, I think in May, we will have released an episode about, you know, making hard decisions about your manuscript and changing things that on recommendation, but then also doing it yourself and having that awareness of, hey, maybe this isn't as strong as I want it to be, or maybe this no longer serves the story. And the reason I'm asking is because you did write this over such a long period of time, it gives you the, the time and perspective to go back and consider these things. Yeah. So probably the, the biggest, hardest change was, um, so the, in the first draft, the novel opens much later in the story compared to the novel as published. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of, I, at that point I was going for like a, a kind of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark style opening because that's another touchstone for this work um, as well as something like the 1999 uh, Brandon Fraser, Rachel Weisz, the mummy movies. It's funny because when I remember when I got this manuscript and I was talking to our publisher, Colin, he said, what do you think? I said, it's the mummy set in space with elements of Guardians of the Galaxy. But like mostly I said, it's the mummy in space. And <laughs> if that doesn't sell a book, I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah. And the like that um, Rick and Evie relationship, especially in the second mummy movie, um, was another big touchstone in terms of like, OK, they have their own things. They are committed to each other. They're on adventures. But they have their um, own styles. Yeah. Yeah. But like I had this opening for the book and one, the first draft came out pretty short because I often will draft short and then a book will grow in revision um, because my earlier drafts tend to be a lot more like, okay, cool, action, action, world, world, action, action, action. Um, And then I go back and unpack things. And moving forward, I'm hoping that my first drafts will have a little bit more uh, kind of character and breath and space in them. And that in revision, I'll just build on that as opposed to um, having to do quite so much work to unpack it. So like there's um, in several different uh, cultures across the world, there's a mythology that um, that the universe started as two lovers embraced mm-hmm. and that that's the, the whole of physical space and that then um, something has to, so, something or some people push them apart to create the gap between the earth and the sky. Um, and so I'm trying to make it so that my novels are not that process so much <laughs> and that they start out with a bit more room to breathe so that both the characters can breathe and that the, the reader can have the, the space to feel all those emotions as powerfully because uh, I've taken the time to ruminate on them versus, you know, just here's a flashy scene and here's some people and they have, you know, distinctive characteristics and now they're going to be action figures through a space. Um, I, like, I want to do, uh, to do more and dwell more with those characters. And part of that's inspired by um, reading a lot more romance novels where in romance, uh, the best writers will do a great job of unpacking emotional reactions. Um, and so I had this one start of the novel and I knew that I needed to to set things up better and I wanted a, a kind of a broader story. So that involved, you know, t- moving the clock back within this timeline, which also then gave me the opportunity to ground the characters more in kind of their home away from home in this um, kind of colony ship that turned city and space called the wreck where, you know, it's okay. So what if you took a colony ship with a dozen species and they all loaded up this big ship and they had all of their hopes and dreams and they set off and then something goes really wrong and it crashes into some asteroid somewhere and they just absolutely cannot get going again. Um, and I really like that setting, but I, I just kind of played through it in the original draft. Um, and so in the revision, I was able to say, okay, here are the things I like about this, and now I want to do more with them. And that was also when I was able to kind of graduate Wheel as a, you know, into more of an equal POV character in the way that she is tied to this place. And that they, the, the three of them, Max, Laura, and Wheel, 
are caught up in this net of relationships and factions. Um, so it was a lot of forcing myself to kind of put my money where the mouth was, my mouth was about here are things I like in writing, here are things I like in storytelling. I'm going to push myself to dig deeper, to put the world on display more, to put my characters under pressure uh, along several different axes that then makes it more realistic within the narrative that they make the choices that they're making as the story unfolds so that at any given moment, they're stuck between some bad options and they try to make the best opportunity for themselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas previously they had like the reason why they went and did the things that they did in the earlier drafts were a little bit more because it's what I wanted from them and less because it's what it, it was the only thing that made sense for who they were as characters and what their relationships were at the time. So it was a lot of raising the stakes, but not in like a grimdark fashion um, stakes and the, the degree to which the characters were enmeshed in the world and were both affected by it and agents affecting it. I want to call attention to what you said though, about um, as you expand your draft, you are not adding density to all the, the spots that you're, you're expanding just for the sake of making it longer, but that you actually are going to this with such intent that you actually are, you know, as you described it, creating space, not creating more, more. You didn't like double the action and then double the tension. You just right. like, you created a space that gave all the characters more room to become alive. So I just thought I'd draw attention to that because uh, so often we talk about how, oh yes, in revision, my book doubles in length, but we don't often say like what that content is. Well, you can double in length and more than double in substance. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's a, that's a trap a lot of writers fall into where I just need to add and add and add and add. And then at some point, someone's going to tell me, yes, you have enough here. Mm -hmm. And it's less about it being enough and more about it being efficient and effective. Right. Yeah, because there's nothing about storytelling with a capital S that says, ah, sorry, this is only 70,000 words. It's not a story yet. <laughs> yeah. And if somebody's telling you that, don't listen to that person. <laughs> yeah. And like, and it's, we're in a position now in the industry where you can publish shorter work and there's still a chance to find an audience, you know, and any given publisher has their own model that they're operating within. And if you're selling paper books, you know, there's kind of a, a minimum size, a minimum word count that will give you a spine that you can put text on and like <laughs> yes, those physical yeah. realities yes. um, inform book publishing to a certain degree. But I was already playing within the novel space that was like, Oh, well, if I just, if I do more and I'm thoughtful, it's not that I'm, Oh, it's not that the book is, you know, 30% better because it's 30% longer. Like it's not, that's not the, mm -hmm. the equation that we're talking about that there is more space for the character relationships, for those relationships to inform the action, for there to be an arc of how these people relate to each other and the ways that they are or are not invested in different things. So that then when I'm doing the big space opera finale, the reader feels like they've gone through the kind of the flow and the, the rise and fall with these characters that the decisions they make there are both believable and kind of a natural um, catharsis for what the people, what the characters have gone through before so that you get the reader, like punch the fist in the air experience when the character does the big thing. So it's not just about getting to 100,000 words and stopping. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I will say that, you know, like at Parvis, we have for submissions a 60,000 word minimum, but that's because we publish novels and for I'm sure you can make an argument for some novels that are a little bit below there. But as Mike said, there's a certain point where you say I need this many words in order for this to be a book that I can have a spine and put the title on. Um, you know, that said, there's no reason to restrict yourself to a word count. You know, if you have a great story and it's 40,000 words, there are places that are looking for great stories that are 40,000 words. Yeah. 
the only question is like, what category of the awards do you have your dreams set on? You know, um, <laughs> but yeah, tell the story at the length that the story wants to be told. And if you want to explore more ideas, then the story gets a little longer. So, Mike, while you were expanding the story, like how much of the relationship between Max and Lara changed? I mean, you already said that you wanted them to have a, you know, a an established, committed relationship. But how fraught with tension did you want that to be? Like you said, one of your inspirations was Guardian of, of the Galaxy, but Max is as far from Peter Quill as you can get. So, like, what's right. how did that develop? Yeah, I think Max as a character was uh, was much much more emerged from the idea that I had was, okay, well, what if you had the the couple from the mummy, but you flipped the genders? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you have, you have the, like the fighty um, square jawed character is the, the wife and the kind of not so useful in a fight uh, academic who's not as used to jumping around in the world is the husband. And that's really where it starts because they, they differ pretty far. They diverge pretty far from just um, those two uh, because I wanted to figure out like, okay, how to have the fish out of water character where like Max is from earth Mm -hmm. and this is very far from earth and (laughs) drawing on that tradition of like John Carter or of Farscape. um, You know, there's, there's a lot, it's, it's portal fantasy, but science fiction Mm -hmm. ultimately. Yeah. Um, and how much it is portal fantasy can depend on like how much being from earth matters Mm -hmm. and the amount of the amount that being from earth mattered for max kind of increased over time, especially as I was really doubling down on, um, who max was, uh, because max is like a black guy from Baltimore. So he grew up in a specific economic and political and cultural context but then he's the one who gets flung into a distant galaxy where it's like racism doesn't work the same way there. And like, <laughs> that's not the main thing because that's not my story to tell as a white writer, but I was committed to respecting who Max is as a person. Um, and so I was able to kind of build some things around him. And so what that became is that Max was already used to coach uh, code switching mm. between different cultural registers. And then here we have this, multicultural civilization that is multicultural and multi-species and that as a archaeologist and linguist like that was his like superpower is being able to pick up language and study and understand culture so already he's really far from peter quill who's much more like a john carter type of character who is you know almost more in the western tradition he just shoulders Um, his way through every situation I was going to say like a bull in a china shop, just, you know, <laughs> dropped yeah. in and is going to behave and do the same thing no matter where they are. Yeah, definitely and no around. code switching from Peter Quill. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in in thinking about who each of Max and Laura were, I had to be smarter and more thorough about who the other were because I needed to have a sense of how they interacted with each other. Like, what does Laura do when Max is at his workstation for hours and hours and hours like pouring through manuscripts and trying to translate things like does she just leave him to do his own thing does she hang out with him like oh okay well like what would make sense because she's a bodyguard she grew up in this kind of cultural paradigm from her from her mother that was very much about a dyadic relationship but between uh, charge and guardian mm-hmm. like okay well how does that inform who she is as a partner in a relationship okay so she's more likely to be the kind of partner who would hang out with you while you're doing your thing to make it clear to you that, you know, that she's supporting what you're doing, but she's not like invading. Uh, it. She's not invading. She's not making it a thing that has to be about both of them. Okay. Well then like, how does Max react when like Laura is really upset about something like, Oh, he's more likely to be the person who wants to like talk it out. But then they've been together for long enough that he realizes that, some of the things that he wants to do are not actually what Lara needs as a person, mm-hmm. because I'm writing this relationship between people who are adults um, and they've, they've lived enough life and they've spent enough time with each other. That they've come to understand one another's rhythms and writing that part of the relationship was really rewarding because I got to show the way that um, I can write in Max's POV and characterize Lara while characterizing Max because then I can write in Laura's POV about Max through her own POV and the places where how they see each other don't exactly line up 
then tell the reader, oh, okay, well, these are both unreliable narrators because this is tight third person, um, which has enough overlap with first person that you're going to get some of that unreliability. And you understand more of what that relationship means by getting both of the, the two, uh, each of their buy-in um, in terms of where they see themselves, where they see their partner, where they have doubts and fears, um, and how that manifests in the way that they act, and how it does and doesn't manifest in how the other person sees them. Because I don't rewrite the same scene from both POVs, but I do frequently write the sequel to a scene in the other partner's POV, so that they're reacting to the same stuff. But beyond even just Max and Lara, then, we have Wheel, who is, I won't call her a third-party observer because that's not the case, but is an outside perspective on a relationship, and in many cases, the only outside perspective on a relationship. Yeah, and she she doesn't have access to their interiority. And like every relationship is different on the inside, even if you're living with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because maybe you overhear conversations, but you're not having that same emotional experience. Um, and so that was a little bit more of a of the place where I got to comment on the relationship from the outside, but also um, think about times where I have been like the third wheel friend to a couple. Um, when they're going yeah. through something. And Wheel is also very fun to write because she has a firmly developed self-image that is, to a certain degree, a protection against the way that things are. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So she's more of like the curmudgeon character who makes a show of keeping people at arm's length, but she could have kicked them out of the ship years ago and be doing something else, but she didn't. Okay, well, why is that? And she's tied into other factions in the story. Um, and that tie also came later because we all started out as more just like the driver will get you from A to B. And then it's like, okay, well, like, how does this technology work? Like, oh, okay, well, we've got these cyborgs. And like, if they used to, if it used to be their empire, like, why aren't they in charge? And like, well, okay, well, then how, how are they still around? Because if you're, if you get overthrown, the people who overthrow you, they're going to try and keep you out of power as much as possible. Annihilate so, you, if you will. <laughs> yeah. So all of those, like all those world building questions then informed who the Atlan um, wheels people, who those people were. Um, and okay, well, the cybernetics gives them the ability to engage with the warp drives, which is a little bit like, um, you know, how the spice works in Dune. It's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like that. And that the, every time I went back into Wheel to either talk about how she was um, seeing something else or her position in this um, setting, you know, engaging with factions on the wreck or her own history as an even older kind of mature adult who's been places and had relationships. Um, every time I tried to fold in or think about some other topic, she grew more rounded as a person, and that gave her even more different ways of engaging with Max and Lara as characters. Was there any evolution to Max and Lara's relationship? Did anything change as the story grew? Or did you always kind of see them as two characters who love each other and are very happily married, but also have separate lives and separate goals that they're working towards, and they're going to help each other do this no matter what? But... The more they help each other, the more they're driving themselves apart. I think the only time when I really had like doubts about Max and Laura was while I was writing the first draft, mm-hmm. because I had this this premise, and following the fiction, I I wanted to to honor it enough to give to like let there be the opportunity for maybe things to go bad for them. I, as the as a creator, had a specific type of outcome that I was shooting for, but I didn't want to put my thumb on the scale so hard that I'm like, oh well, you know, it doesn't matter what these things happened. Uh, actually, it's going to be happy that you know, happily ever after, no matter what. Haha, ha, I win uh, because that wouldn't be it. Wouldn't be as strong of a write like it wouldn't be as strong of a work because it would feel more. Um, it would it feel like there was a cop out. Um, so. Because I had an outcome in mind, it was more about what in the world has to be different from maybe where things were at the middle of my first draft so that it made sense that the choices that they made led them to where they were at the end of the book. And probably the biggest changes there happened um, when the when 
the the group goes to someplace that's really important to Lara um, and her heritage. And I'll stay vague for readers so that they go and buy the book and read it because it's great. Um, it's a it's a fantastic book. Everyone should go buy it and read it. Um, and that basically by since I believe very firmly that people are um, informed informed by their circumstances, but not always 100% limited by them. Like there's, there's places where agency is limited and, you know, mm -hmm. yep. society and so on. Um, but that because people are informed by their circumstances, if I want a different character output, I, I can change the circumstances to put different pressures on them and to give them different experiences that let them reflect differently on what they feel about things. So it was kind of a, a back and forth, a feedback loop between who these characters are as I'm as, as I'm expressing it in the writing, trying to respect who they are as people as I understand them, and then also per, uh, applying different pressures and adjusting the pressures on them so that the story kind of stays within the trajectory that I'm thinking. Um, because probably the 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 first core of that of the story was them and their relationship and the other things kind of grew around that. And then the thematics emerged from how they as characters reacted with one another. And then like looking backward, how all those things um, operate so that the, any thematic clarity that a reader gets from Aria is, is not something that was like on page one of my notes. It's, because the process of creating it as the book that people will read was, you know, development, rehearsal, practice, re-rehearsal, changing the arrangement, practicing again, changing the blocking, and like using music metaphors here, because I've done music and theater, um, that not only is the story um, entertaining, but it's also as much as possible saying the things that I would like to say or inviting the reader to reflect on the same themes and ideas that um, were what I was uh, hoping for them to do. Because, and this is something I talked about with Kaylin uh, pretty early on in the process, was this could have been several different books. It's, um, and it's something, I always joke that, you know, when I'm reading through books, I can tell what sections of it were written at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, authors, you guys aren't always as slick as you think you are. You leave fingerprints on a lot of things. And um, that was something coming into this that I could tell what chunks of this book had kind of been written at the start, what books, what parts had been revised very heavily. Um, but we spent a lot of time in the beginning talking about the thematic elements of this. But also, you know, as you said, this book could have gone a lot of different directions. And I think it went... I will go so far as to say the correct direction, <laughs> um, the one of the, the best possible directions it could have gone. Um, but I can see that in reading, in reading this, especially reading some of the earlier drafts that I got, that there were a lot of different things that could have happened in this story and happened to these characters. And I think that speaks very highly of your world building and your ability to create and develop believable characters is I can see them dropped into different scenarios and just acting on their own accord. They're an object in motion at that point, rather right. than something that you're directing to do certain things. And um, that's, that's amazing. And that's a fantastic thing to be able to do as a writer. Um, yeah, it's another way of thinking about it. And this is definitely it's informed by a, a video I was watching recently, between a uh, conversation between a couple of game designers, um, is that some of it is just down to, to tone. And yes. that, you know, two two musicians can take the same song and go, okay, cool. Well, one musician is going to, um, I'm going for the same tone, but I'm going to move the key. And just moving the key actually changes more than maybe you expect. Um, it's, you know, it's like um, the the moody, emo, uh, down-tempo version of a pop song. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, actually, I just discovered a cover of um, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Tori Amos which mm. is, uh, actually, I discovered it because it was on one of Rekka's playlists that she sent me <laughs> and, um, and is fantastic. But I mean, like, it completely changes what you would maybe think the underlying context of the song would be. Um, so, yeah, I think, 
you know, as I said, when we started all of this, I would read anything that you set in this world, especially, you know, if the characters are as engaging and compelling and dynamic as the ones that you've created for Aria, because I see them as their own people rather than chess pieces being moved around on a board. They're, they're there to carry out actions that it doesn't always feel like you, the author, are dictating to them. <laughs> They've taken on a will of their own at this point. Yeah, and that is that is for the best because if they're like on a list of um, writing traps that I know I can fall into, having something that feels a little bit more like action figures and choreography is mm -hmm. definitely on that list. And so I have to respect the characters and go back and make sure that... Um, that all of the circumstances and the kind of the um, the world building acoustics, maybe mm -hmm. to extend the music metaphor, that those are that those line up so that um, things end up the way that I would like them to be. So along those lines, and we're uh, we're getting to the end here to start wrapping up. We we like to ask our guests, um, you know, for advice or introspective or something you wish you could go back and tell Mike five years ago when he was starting this whole process. Um, well, so I've been working as a writer now long enough that five years ago is not the start of my career. Um, cause it used to be like, I had this, I had this advice that like, people would ask me like, Oh, what would you tell a younger self? Um, and it used to be about revision and what I learned about revision from the late great Graham Joyce, um, at Clarion West. Um, uh, but that was a lesson I learned 13 years ago now. So I think the lesson I got, the lesson for five years ago, Mike would be, start reading romance. You're going to really like it. And it's going to teach you a lot about character relationships and getting drama and emotional investment for the reader out of just the, the very um, core relationships between people. And that, you know, in, in a romance, people are also uh, emergent from their circumstances and there's lots of things that you can do there, but that emotional action flywheel of person A does a thing you're in person B's um, POV. So person B first has like a visceral embodied reaction to what, you know, this emotionally charged thing that was said. And then we're in their perspective and they're like, their mind is racing and reflecting on something. And maybe they're, they're going through an emotional journey about what's going on. And maybe it makes them think about something, but not so long that you can't then go back into scene and write about, what they're doing in reaction so that you're able to kind of create this cycle of action and reaction where it's not just talking heads, but we're also getting all of this um, beat by beat dramatization of the emotional arc, the emotional roller coaster of your POV character along the way. And that approach was a lot of what I had to bring to Aria in successive drafts, especially as Kaylin kept on poking me and saying like, no, unpack this more, like slow down. Um, you know, either to give the emotional um, roller coaster or to paint with a, with a finer brush the world around the characters. And that that process and that urging to slow down and unpack has been really great. It's really fun to do. So it's not like I'm being told I have to eat my vegetables. It's give yourself the situation and the platform on which you can then do these things that you really like doing and you're going to be happier with the results. I think in, in my experience dealing with authors, there's um, what I'll call an overcorrection that writers tend to incorporate into their work, which is I don't want to be the long winded person here. I don't want to be the one that spends a paragraph describing, you know, the exact emotion that this character is feeling for 150 words. And there is certainly something to be said for being aware of that. But at the same time, I conversely always point out, you know how they're feeling, you know what they're thinking, you need to make sure that's coming across to the reader. Um, every the, the reader doesn't get access to your brain for this, they get access to the pieces of it that you're putting in this book. Um, so yeah, I, you know, and part of it was very selfish. Part of this was, well, hang on. I want to know what's going on here. <laughs> Mike, tell me. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's I, I really liked learning more about these characters as the book 
developed. And I think you did an outstanding job. That is very, that's a very kind sentiment. And I'm very grateful that, uh, that you have that experience, because that makes me feel very good as a writer. What I also like, love about it is that you have put in all this work for character building and world building, but the book reads as fast as any like omnomnomable um, sci-fi book out there. Like it, it does not get burdened with as much work as you put into it. It doesn't show like you have, you have a seamless uh, story going on. And even though Kaylin can tell which spots you rewrote, like no one who I'll never this- tell. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is Kaylin's superpower that that's not indicative of what you're going to feel as you read it. But it's, it's very um, fast paced. And, and as you said, you worked very hard on the tension and it shows and it pulls the reader straight from the beginning to the end. And it's um, definitely leaves you wanting more. So um, I hope that the space opera series is going to continue for quite some time because whether it's Max and Lara and Wheel or, you know, um, Kruji getting uh, their own book, you know, that's, I'd read them all. I mean, Kruji. like Kruji absolutely needs, uh, needs their own book. That's um, the entire story of Annihilation Aria from the perspective of Kruji. <laughs> well, maybe, so I'll write some books and then 12 years after the series ends, I'll come back and do the Kruji book. Because I've, I've started a number of different series and the the heartbreaking thing about publishing is it's very There's hard. There's only to, one. <laughs> well, it's like it's it's hard to justify writing something when I don't see a market for it. Yeah. Um, and so there are there's things that I would love to go back to. But right now, the economic reality say, like, why would you do that? That's a terrible <laughs> idea. And so what I'm hoping for with any given new series is I hope that this finds enough of an audience that there is the demand to create the economic circumstances that will let me pursue that interest more. Um, because only now in the novel I just wrote, have I written something that I think actually could just stay a standalone. Um, everything else, you know, I'm writing a world that I think I could do a lot more things in. And I can do more things in this, this uh, just finished novels world, but I want that novel to be able to stand on its own. Um, for the space operas, I'd love to write more and I will write more if the circumstances permit. Yeah, there is. Um, it's a very difficult thing for not just writers, but creators in general to say, I am making this and it is a finite project that is done now. Well, you spend yeah. all uh, that time living in that world. Exactly. And so you yeah. see all the corners where you're like, oh, there's someone down there. I got to go follow that after I'm done with this. Yeah. Uh, for instance, Kruji, who... Yes. I feel like has a lot of very important stories to tell some perspectives and insights to offer the reader that um, is really going to enrich the story of the kettle. So uh, yeah. my, that's... Uh, smart readers will be able to pick up some of the places where that could go um, in some, some chunks of the novel. And if you figure it out, uh, email me on my website. <laughs> so, um, yeah, speaking of, uh, Annihilation Aria is out a week from today. You still have time to pre-order the book and uh, the audiobook as well is available for purchase. Um, Mike, uh, where can people find you online? Sure. So uh, my website is michaelrunderwood.com um, that has kind of basic updates. I have a Patreon that you can find at patreon.com slash michaelrunderwood. And it um, comes with a lot of pictures of a cute dog. Very it's true. Dog. Highly recommend. My dog Oreo is really the star of my Patreon, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> keep, I know how the internet works. Yeah. Yeah. Give and, the people what they want. Yeah. If you and if you're listening to this, you like podcasts. So I am a, an occasional guest co-host on the Skiffy and Fanty Show, which is a general fanish podcast about books and movies and TV and so on. Uh, and I'm a co-host on Speculate, which is an actual play podcast starring science fiction fantasy professionals. Um, uh, as of this recording, we've started a Blaze in the Dark miniseries. I'm going to start a Star Wars miniseries using the Scum and Villainy system. And um, sometime in the future, there may be some role-playing uh, in a world listeners of this episode will now be familiar with. Uh, but more, to the, uh, hmm. more will come on that uh, later on. It's a nice teaser there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike, thanks so much for... Uh for talking to us. This was great. I mean, I, you know, for as much as I've already, you know, gotten to hear about this, I never get tired of talking about this book and the characters and the process to get it to where it was. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, because it's written over so long, uh, for such a, a long time, like I am still processing all of the like lessons and things like, oh, that really did take this thing or this is where that actually comes from. Um, so that process just by itself is really rewarding for me. And it's fun to get to um, to participate in this show that I've enjoyed as a listener. Thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Mike. And uh, everyone listening, we'll talk to you in two weeks. for another episode of We Make Books. If you have any questions that you want answered in future episodes or just have questions in general, remember you can find us on Twitter at WMBCast. Same for Instagram or WMBCast.com. If you find value in the content that we provide, we would really appreciate your support at patreon.com forward slash WMBCast. If you can't provide financial support, we totally understand. And what you could really do to help us is spread the word about this podcast. You can do that by sharing a particular episode with a friend who can find it useful. Or if you leave a rating and review at iTunes, it will feed that algorithm and help other people find our podcast too. Of course, you can always retweet our episodes on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon.